Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. My name is Matt Rusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Jorna Taylor is here. Jorna is a nonprofit consultant here in Wisconsin. Jorna, thanks for joining us. Good morning. All right. Jorna is all ready. We got Robert Craig. Robert is not in the office with us today in our high-tech recording podcast studio. He is traveling. Robert Craig is the executive director here. Robert, thanks for joining us. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, greetings from the Edge City around O'Hare Airport. What, what are you doing in uh, the Edge City, Robert? Oh, we have a conference to uh, plan the next 10 years of, of health care reform. Sounds sounds important. Uh, we'll talk a we'll talk a little bit more about healthcare later in the podcast. Um, we are going to start the podcast by talking about uh, the congressional sit-in. Um, we're also going to talk more about uh, Paul Ryan's healthcare plan, and we're going to talk a little bit about Governor Walker's. I believe he's now says he's been up to forty of these closed door listening sessions. Open we'll talk, oh, listening sessions. Hey, hold it. We'll talk more about that later. We want to talk about Act 10 and the report that came out from the conservative think tank this week and what that means. And then Corey Mason will join us to talk about the city of Waukesha getting access to Lake Michigan water and what that all means. So with that, Jorna, we want to, I want you to start us off in a conversation about the sit-in that started uh, yesterday. Uh, in Congress, and of course, really how the sit-in is uh, essentially uh, an effort to try to insert what we believe is the reason behind why we have things like Orlando, and start to actually look at some saying gun controls as opposed to just hiding behind terrorism. But Jorna, want to get your thoughts on this? Yeah, so as pretty much anybody listening to the podcast likely knows, Representative John Lewis, a well-renowned, respected, and revered civil rights leader led some of his colleagues to sit in on the House floor to say that they weren't going to allow the House to go on break um, for the summer so that everybody could have some summer vacation for a little bit uh, (laughs) until there was a vote on at least some form of gun control. Again, to be clear, from my perspective, we're still not fighting for enough, but we are fighting for something. So... Democrats, congressional Democrats, and a few Senate Democrats like um, U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin joined them for a little while. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they sat in on the floor, literally sat on the floor, held the floor of the House. um, And as last reporting from public television, there were still 16 of them, quote, draped in blankets, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, a ragtag bunch, it it may seem, um, still sitting on the House floor. And for for our listeners, we record Thursday morning. Yes. It's about it's about eight fifteen or so. So, still at it now. Most folks will listen to this Friday. So, uh, but obviously, this is a, a tactic. Uh, our Congressman Paul Ryan called it a I don't know. I think a political ploy. Or, yes. So this this is the man of uh, how many votes to uh, to kill Obamacare. But we won't get into that. He's right in that it is obviously an effort to try Absolutely. to draw attention to an issue where there's basically complete 
intransigence on the other side. Well, and Democrats have acknowledged that this is an educational opportunity. They're using, you know, the bully pulpit that they have in the minority party to raise awareness around this. Um, you know, and then Republicans, House Republicans, took their toys and went home. So in the middle of this, about 10 or 11 hours into this sit-in, I believe, uh, the esteemed House Speaker, Mr. Paul Ryan, uh, held a vote on something completely unrelated to gun control. It was on some fiduciary bill to block Obama from, you know, holding Wall Street accountable is my understanding. So that's awesome. We're not going <laughs> to vote on, you know, weapons of mass destruction in many ways that kill people, but we can totally like try and protect Wall Street. So good work. Robert, your thoughts. Yeah, just to clarify, uh, the vote they took was um, try to override the Department of Labor rule that says that uh, financial advisors actually have to act in the interest of the client and not the interest of where they make their commissions. A shocking idea. Uh, and so, the, but that's apparently very important. And they claim that this is a help to low income people because we get more financial advice if the financial advisors can be biased and sell them bogus products like annuities. Um, uh, instead of uh, actually looking out for their interests. So that, that's, what, that's what interrupted, what they tried to have a vote on. So according to the CNN ticker, where it was a record, we're 21 hours, 51 minutes into the sit-in, so we don't know if we're going to be at 40-something hours when, when folks listen to this Friday or whether it will have ended. Uh, but, yes, of course it's a publicity stunt. Uh, but what the protest is really about is what, what amounts to an NRA veto in Congress, which is nowhere in the Constitution I've ever seen. And they won't even do something common sense like people who they put on the no-fly list or the terror list uh, can't buy guns. And they're insisting on some level of due process that would make it impossible. Interestingly, they don't care about there being due process for being on a no-fly list or, or a terrorism list, only about whether you can buy heavy ammunition or not. Uh, but I think it's a it's a brilliant move, and it brings much more attention to this. It's the only way, this kind of action, that you're ever going to uh, expose the NRI veto to the public uh, and, to, and the public scrutiny. Because right now, uh, conservative Republicans are not accountable for what they're doing, which is a bizarre never world where any reasonable common sense restriction on guns is somehow a violation of the Constitution. And I know people don't want to have the legal fight about this anymore, but I'm sorry. Read the Second Amendment. And apparently, the well-regulated militia part was entirely just thrown in there by the bad writers of the, uh, that, that were our founding fathers. I mean, gee, it's ridiculous. And it's never been interpreted this, this way until quite recently when we had these uh, artificially generated right-wing judges uh, as part of the conservative movement who are not fact-based. So there should be no question that we can, we can protect public safety and restrict access uh, to, to essentially military-style weapons that allow allow one deranged individual to take the lives away from large numbers of people, as we saw in Orlando. Well, but Robert, you're you're basing this on the premise that this is about guns and not about Islamic terrorists, because that's what this is all about, right? You know, and we're safer if one deranged individual who literally can be inspired by the internet can get heavy ammunition and can kill to get large numbers of people. We know that. If he didn't have such a, such easy access to people like him, then there's a big debate about whether he could have gotten it anyway. Of course he could have, uh, but if you make it harder, you make these sort of tragedies less likely. And these have become a common feature of American life, and there's no need for this. How many people have to be sacrificed 
for the bizarre NRA ideology and the financial and system gun manufacturing. So I think that little skit there, <laughs> Jorna, thank you, actually lays out what this is about, right? It is defining the narrative out of out of Orlando, which is absolutely critical. I think, Jorna, at the very beginning, you correctly raised, let's not uh, confuse this with what they were sitting in on the specific policy as being the panacea, because it isn't. It's actually trying to define uh, the intransigence, as Robert said, thanks to the NRA on the other side. And so this was very, very important for that reason. And historically, who was involved in it, I think, is also important. And I mean, great, great pictures, right? And I think it inspired some people who are feeling a little bit hopeless about the situation to actually see somebody stand up and say, no, 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 no we need to change this. Um, even if it's um, not uh, uh, maybe historic policy, one might say, uh, it's, it's certainly exposing the other side and it needed to be done. Well, well certainly. Yeah, the bizarre, you know, we had Paul Ryan talking about we need due process to ever take away a fundamental constitutional right. Um, I love how conservative justice claimed they're originalists. The Constitution, if you want to interpret uh, the, the Second Amendment the way they do, which is absurd grammatically, um, was done at a time when you had flintlock guns, where you had to take 30, 45 seconds to reload for your next shot, at which point, if you went into a crowded place, you would be tackled and it would be taken away from you. And so I would think the originalists might take into account the technology under which the Constitution was written, even if you think that they flew in the regulating militia part because they were they were fuzzy-headed and bad bad writers. Well, and let's be clear, you know, as much as I say this isn't the be-all, end-all of bills, most good progressive social justice movements have been piece by piece. You know, I'll use the example of the LGBT equality movement where we just got marriage equality, which, again, is not the be-all, end-all of it, but we started with domestic um, partnership, you know, benefits in many states, and you know there was a piece by piece. So, so there's if we can start somewhere on gun control, I am convinced we can get to real gun control in my lifetime. <laughs> Means Georgia regional reasonable public safety, right? Yes. At this point, the progressive movement is not trying to take away people's gun legitimate use of guns for hunting. That is that is a core element of American culture. Um, I have to say, though, since the crazy NRA position is that any safe restriction whatsoever, like ter- people on the terror watch list can't buy you know, heavy ammunition right, and guns, and, um, is somehow going to cause everyone's guns to be taken away. You know what? Some way down the road, if that is the real choice, that could actually lead to uh, guns being taken away. I mean, so it's a, it's, a, it's a silly position if you think about it. Why would you want to pit those two things against each other? They have nothing to do with each other. So with that, we are going to continue to talk about Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan released his new in healthcare plan. I use plan in quotes. This is not much of a plan. There's no real financing behind it. But the plan does a number of things that really functionally uh, are a significant step back from the Affordable Care Act. Um, Robert, I know you follow this stuff closely. Um, and by the way, let's just say this plan, if it was serious, would have been introduced a long time ago, right? Like we're talking about the party in power here. He talks about it as if he's some 
some great person who's putting forward something that he never, like, you know, it's been a struggle. You know, you guys have been in charge. Where's this been? And by the way, there's nothing behind this. Robert, tell our listeners a little bit more about the key problems with this plan. Well, the biggest problem, and you're right, it's very generous to call it a plan. Uh, it's a publicity stunt, right? Um, How, Paul Ryan doesn't believe in that. He's never. scolding about that just yesterday. So stop it, Robert. And if they had a plan, they'd write it. So what it does is it through strategic ambiguity, it tries to suggest it has a viable replacement. It re-legalizes discrimination because the insurance companies, of course, should be allowed to exclude anyone who has a health condition or is older or might cost them money, because uh, that's the American way, at least as they see it. Um, but then it promises high-risk pools, which were a failed policy in the past, without any specification of how well they'll be funded, what the actual cost to people will be. Uh, the thing about the Affordable Care Act is not only is it banned discrimination, it literally, to people up to four times the poverty rate, defines what their premium can be and makes up the difference based uh, with tax credits to make it more affordable. We think it should be even more affordable than we need to move forward from the ACA because it's still too unaffordable. There's no such guarantee under Ryan. He never says what any tax credits people get will actually be worth, which is, again, it's not a plan. Of course, therefore, there's no cost associated with it, so it's not a plan. Uh, so it's simply a way, a fig leaf, so they can say that when, when they want to appeal the Affordable Care Act and throw millions and millions of people off their health insurance, oh, no, that's not true. We have this undefined vague plan. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. The only people who are going to believe this are people that are such partisan Republicans that believe anything Paul Ryan says. Other than that, it's pretty worthless to them as well. So we're going to continue to watch uh, and see if this plan gets any pickup. I mean, I, I, if, if folks want a, you know, a nice, quick, detailed summary of what's wrong with it, we have a link to an article written by Ron Pollack, who's uh, an expert on this issue, about precisely what's wrong with it, uh, if you want just a little bit more information on that. But uh, uh, we'll continue to track. Did I miss anything big, Matt? Oh, look, Robert, I, I don't want to spend too much time on it. We can okay. go through the details. There's there's a number of things connected to Medicaid and, uh, you know, how much working families will have to pay subsidies, right? There's, Look, this thing is actually quite bad and a step back and is trying to make it seem as if, um, you, hey, you can get your ACA, everything you like about it, but all the bad things we'll get rid of, right? So it's, of course, fantasy. So, And if it was a serious plan, it would have been presented along time ago uh they're in charge so that's the ridiculousness as he lectures uh, uh democrats about publicity stunts with that speaking of the best publicity stunt in the world let's talk about governor walker's closed door <laughs> invite <Walker>. only <laughs> <Full stop>. <laughs> listening <laughs> sessions uh, the reason we got to do this is we've mentioned these things before he's been doing this now for a couple of months uh, to tinsel up his uh quite frankly uh, crappy economy uh, that's producing low-wage jobs at a very slow rate. Um, essentially, uh, this guy got called out this week. A number, I, the the article said, a couple, at least three dozen uh, folks came and showed up in Pepin, Wisconsin, to essentially draw attention to the fact that, like, a regular person from Pepin can't just show up and go to a listening session that these are invite only they were not allowed in and you know they made a stink about it and drew some attention to it and it's gotten tremendous pickup because these things are so ridiculous jorna i mean i know you got invited to the, the these sessions oh 
I think my invitation <laughs> might have been lost in the mail. I think my favorite response so far was Walker spokesman uh, Tom Evenson said that the sessions are closed because, quote, we want this to be a personal conversation between constituents and the governor and to make attendees feel more comfortable in expressing their opinions, end quote. And now I would add their opinions about how awesome Governor Walker is about all of the awesome jobs he's created for Wisconsin and how he has just been awesome in general. Do you think that they have, like, when they invite people, you know, Activists will know that we use, you know, the, the voter file to go out and talk to activists and to collect, you know, we give them like a, a rating, a one, a two. Do you think there's like an awesome Governor Walker rating on their party van? That's the five. You get rated a five when you're super <laughs> awesome. awesome. Hey, Robert, actually, I know you talked about this because I believe, weren't you a guest speaker at one of these uh, listening sessions on the economy? I, you're, you presented our plan, right? Our, our plan for no, creating jobs? Not that. Okay. Allowed to do so. I was able. I was allowed to sit in on a Senate invitation only uh, for speakers uh, session on how we were going to do job creation in Wisconsin. Apparently, it was, going to make, it was by making us super cool, so millennials would stay here who who were well educated and had tech backgrounds. So that was very interesting, but not going to do much for most uh, Wisconsin workers. Um, look, I mean this whole. Facade, this weird thing with these weird closed sessions really began during the protests when, in 2011 when Walker stopped actually being in public in any unregulated fashion. And uh, it is, it would be unfair, Jordan and Matt, to call this something like Stalinist, right? But I at least think we could call it Soviet. It's like Leonid Brezhnev, remember the decaying ossified leader of the late Soviet Union, calling in all of their top party people into a big room and, and then listening to what they have to say. Oh, Chairman Brezhnev, thank you for the era of unbounded freedom and peace and prosperity that you have created, oh, great leader. Uh, that's what these are like. It's, it's absolutely comical that he even thinks that this will help uh, burnish his reputation when he's below 40% in approval ratings and can't even face the public of the, of the state he allegedly governs. And... One other uh, great Walker policy that we need to make sure we discuss uh, before we have uh, Representative Mason on is there was a report released this week from a conservative think tank. I don't recall the name off the top of my head, but it was a report about Act 10 and its economic impact in Wisconsin. And uh, one really important thing I wanted to get the uh, panel's thoughts on was it, it, it showed that $2,000 worth of, uh, of salary or income has come out of teachers since Act 10, which is significant, right, given, you know, we're already, what, now five, six years uh, down the road, and we're talking about 2000 less. Um, huge economic impact to, to educators in our state. Jorna, I, I, mean, I don't know if you've read the report, but... I have not read the report, but, you know, I mean, I'm sure it finds that it's because teachers are lazy, right? <laughs> Something, I don't oh, think it no, quantified it that, didn't. but it, it failed to quantify that. It did find, if, if I'm correct, I think it said like $4 billion worth of revenue that had been saved. Uh, I know the state economy, you can feel that. It's pumping through the economy. So, uh, look, I mean, like the worst, the, the really shameful part about this is that, what, Act 10 was five years ago, over five years ago, five and a half years ago now and um, teachers are making two thousand dollars less that's less that's not accounting for any sort of inflation increased cost of living tenure on the job anything like that they are making two thousand dollars less five years later robert 
I don't think our listeners would be surprised to learn that conservative economic theory and dogma is not fact-based. Uh, though I will say this report does open a new frontier for perhaps uh, vindicating Walker's economy, because if lowering people's wages is a good thing for the economy, then Walker's done a great job beyond teachers and public employees. And since wages are down and we're uh, over 14% since the year 2000 in real terms, and since we're producing mostly poverty wage jobs, he can be touting how much wages are going down and therefore what a great prosperity he's creating. Uh, obviously, it's the opposite, and what folks need to understand is, is that when that many people uh, have less money to spend, it hurts the whole economy, they have less money to spend in their local communities. In addition, just it harms education. Why is it that paying CEOs more is always a good thing, but it's good to cut teachers' salaries, and that'll make for a, a stronger teacher profession and more better people coming to the profession, etc.? It's all ridiculous and crazy, and so... It's, it's, what's amazing is that they're willing to flaunt this stuff so publicly. That's how far gone conservative ideology is, that they actually think that this is compelling and persuasive in some way. The only way it isn't is if we don't make the case. And we need to make the case. This is highly damaging to education, and this damages the whole economy, and we need to repeat that over and over again. And I hope podcast listeners will get on social media and Facebook and point out how much less money teachers have to spend in their communities and how much less attractive teaching is as a profession when it's one of the most important professions we have in our whole society and one of the most important professions for the future of our society. Yeah, no, the economic impact is critical, right? And, 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 not, and, and this isn't like, oh, this is all concentrated just in one part of the state. This is spread out nice and evenly throughout all of our communities, right? So this has, has a real impact that is, is spread every community because it's, you know, hit, teachers are everywhere. We're not talking about, you know, oh, there's, you know, a big plant of them in one community where they're taking the hit, right? And everybody else can just ignore it. So um, it was a, amazing that this report tried to pump this up as positive. We have, I think, UW Oshkosh, for example, has seen a 37% reduction, roughly, in those terms, of the number of people going into teaching. Uh, So there's a huge dramatic negative impact on teaching that we'll be feeling for years to come, let alone all the early retirements or people leaving the profession. And so you have the economy, plus you have just the impact on really a profession that we should pay more attention to, support better, because we need highly qualified teachers with reasonable class sizes for every kid in Wisconsin. If we're going to have a 21st century education, we've taken huge steps backward thanks to this exploitive hireling of the Koch brothers who's in the governor's mansion. So with that, we are going to switch topics, uh, which includes our, our guest. We have a guest today. We are really fortunate now to have a special guest with us. Uh, and that is State Representative Corey Mason. Corey represents the Racine area. Corey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we have State Rep Corey Mason on to talk very specifically about the decision that uh, was uh, that came down yesterday that will allow the city of Waukesha to get access to Great Lakes water. Um, and Corey has been someone who's been a leader on both uh, this issue around access to water, and in particular because of its impact on Racine. So we wanted to have Corey on to educate our listeners a little bit about what what this all means and, uh, and, and what it means going forward. So Corey, tell us a little bit about essentially what's most important about what happened yesterday with this decision. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of things that are, are really critical to to really reflect on here. First, at a very parochial level for Southeast Wisconsin, I mean, what Waukesha basically got was a permit to pollute the Root River, which runs right through Racine, um, by accessing 8.2 million gallons a day from from Lake Michigan with a pipeline from Oak Creek. And then after they're done with their water and, and treat sewage, they get to dump the treated sewage back into the Root River that'll flow uh, right through the city of Racine and out into Lake Michigan. And so, you know, I've been trying to say for almost a decade now that Racine doesn't want to be Waukesha's toilet. Uh, but unfortunately, um, unless we have successful lawsuits stemming from this, it looks like that may be what comes to pass. So this is a really big deal. Uh, Waukesha is obviously thrilled. They've been able to, you know, secure the, the continued sprawl and growth that they'd like to see happen by using this drinking water challenge that they had to argue for Great Lakes water. They were granted that this week through a process under the Great Lakes Compact, which ironically was set up to prevent exactly these kind of things from happening um, without very strict environmental standards being met. So, so regionally, this is so important because, you know, all eight Great Lakes states, the Canadian provinces and both the Canadian and U.S. government had to ratify this compact between the states and this agreement between the Canadians. And the idea was to prohibit large-scale water withdrawals from Lake Michigan or any of the Great Lakes to drier, thirstier parts of the planet uh, as water becomes more and more precious. And lots of work was done to get this passed. Uh, and the belief was that the compact would be in place to prevent these kind of bad decisions uh, from being made. And so now there's lots of concern around the entire Great Lakes area about exactly this sort of question. So now that the governors have decided to ignore some parts of the Great Lakes compact and the strong environmental standards that were in it, what other standards might they ignore in the future and how strong really is the compact and its ability to protect the Great Lakes? Corey, I just, I was surprised. I was shocked, actually, when I saw it, because I, I remember when the compact was set up, and, you know, lots of assurances that this would be precisely the kind of thing that it would prevent. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people, certainly progressives, probably had the same response. I assume you did. I mean, what's the justification for this? Well, I mean, the justification that they use, I mean, you know, I mean, Waukesha did a very good job talking about its drinking water problems, and they have one, and they have to address it. You know, we were pointing out, as were all the environmentalists and, you know, over 100 state legislators from across the basin and scores of, of mayors from across the Great Lakes Basin, that, look, Waukesha has other alternatives to treat this. They don't need to jeopardize downstream communities to do this. I mean, in some ways, it's really a cautionary tale for people who work on legislation. Sometimes we get so fixated on being able to say we accomplished something legislatively, we lose sight about asking the questions, is this going to work in the real world the way we want it to? And it's, it's a real challenge for progressives broadly, whether it's around environmental policy or health care or education. I mean, it's one thing to sort of lay out a policy that you hope does some good, but, you know... Uh, down here amongst normal working people, sometimes all the best efforts get undone if you don't have smart public policy in place that actually works in the real world. And unfortunately, I think we're seeing a, a prime example of that this week 
with the failure of the Great Lakes Compact to live up to its promise. Well, thank you for your work. I, I guess I can no longer say that, you know, the Canadians had common sense in this one. I, I guess we'll just have to blame Canada at, at some point here. Um, <laughs> had a seat at the table, but they had no vote. So the way the process oh. works is Ontario and Quebec were there, and they were raising concerns. And actually, Ontario, of all the jurisdictions, did the most thorough analysis and raised the most concerns about Waukesha's proposal. But the way the process worked, it's an interstate compact amongst the Great Lakes states. So Canadians have a voice, but they didn't have a vote. Um, so... So you can maybe be frustrated with Canadians for any number of reasons, but you, you can't hold them accountable. I, I, I take it back. We never make mistakes on the podcast. We never misstate anything. No. Well, the, the one thing, you know, the only thing that I can think of when, I, when I'm thinking about this is that this is just so unfair. That's the word that comes to mind. Yeah. It's, it's unfair to, you know, those of us that live along the Great Lakes. It's unfair to your community in Racine that you've now become – you know, the toilet for Waukesha, which is ridiculous. And it's unfair that, you know, a lot of politicians were, and these governors were so short-sighted in what this is going to do and have the impact on the environment. So unfair is the word of the day. Well, you... Yeah, and and I also, I just want to point out, I mean, there's a real environmental justice component to this, right? I mean, not only for whether or not it's a good idea for for letting them have a straw into the Great Lakes, but I mean, what we're basically saying is, look, when one of the richest, most affluent counties in the country wants Great Lakes water, they can get it, and then they can take their treated sewage and flush it down a river that will go through one of the most challenged, uh, diverse, and areas with highest unemployment in the state, and those communities get to see, uh, you know, Waukesha's treated sewage flow by every day and get to incur all the risks that go along with that. And, and that's a real issue that, that I think we're going to start to hear more about as this moves forward. So, Corey, there's Robert. Was this more on balance a, you know, two-week a compact, bad analysis, um, an incomplete analysis, not just scientifically, but of the justice concern you just raised? Or was just a, were there underlying politics to this that made these other states go along? Why did Minnesota or Michigan go along with this, for example? Uh, yes, on all three of those things. So, so certainly, I mean, when we were first debating the Great Lakes Compact, um, a lot of accommodations were made, frankly, to give Waukesha a better than fair chance of succeeding here and not necessarily giving the lakes a better than fair chance of being protected here and certainly not rivers like Racine's Root River from being protected. Um, so there's bad analysis. When, when we were debating this, uh, I tried very hard and was unsuccessful to convince um, the then governor and my colleagues that there should be language in the bill that says, look, if you're going to use return flow through a river, those communities that are downstream ought to have a vote on whether or not that's acceptable. There ought to be some voice that they have about whether or not they want their communities to be the receiving water of millions of gallons of treated sewage every day. And I couldn't successfully um, do that. I mean, and, you know, that's not an outlandish concept. I mean, you, it, it's a concept that actually comes from Milton Friedman's capitalism and freedom um, that, you know, downstream communities, when it comes to pollutants, ought to at least have a voice in some sort of exchange about what role they play in that. But I couldn't successfully uh, get that idea inserted into the compact. Um, and so, so that was part of it. The analysis mm-hmm. was very weak in the process. It's 
started really by not even asking, does Waukesha have a viable alternative to do this? It was just accepted that they should. Um, and then the other thing about the analysis that was infuriating is there's nothing that requires Waukesha to send its treated sewage back through the Root River. It's just the cheapest option for them. And nobody amongst the governors was willing to say, well, you know, if they're going to build a pipeline to take the water in, maybe we should make them make a pipeline to send it back or have them go through MMSD or some of these other established uh, treatment uh, facilities instead of just dumping it into a, an open river that's already impaired and that communities downstream have been working very hard to restore and, and make an asset in their community. So the analysis was done poorly. And then um, the politics of it, I mean, up until last week, I was very convinced that Minnesota was going to say no to this proposal uh, and really surprised that in the 11th hour, they agreed to some pretty weak amendments that, in their view, think that make them think that we're going to, um, you know, protect the river, but in reality, make it almost impossible in real terms to have a, a right of action for downstream communities to, to be made whole or to prevent Waukesha from adding these pollutants into the river. So what do you think the politics of that were, briefly? I, so here's the question that I think was in the back of every governor's mind. Is, look, I might have a community that needs Great Lakes water someday, too. And if I say no to Waukesha, does that make it harder for my state to get access to water under this narrow exemption if we need it? And that's something that I don't think that the compact anticipated playing out, but I think it was a very real factor, with the exception of Michigan, which is entirely in the basin that doesn't have to grapple with this concern. I think Governor Steiner had his own Flint issues to, to look through, um, to, look, to see through as a sort of a lens that defined how he viewed this as much as anything else. But, but for all the other governors, I think the question arose, well, if we have a community that uh, that might need this someday, and we're the ones that say no to this, does that mean there'll be retribution in the future if my state needs it? And I think that was hanging out there in a way that, that people didn't anticipate when the compact was crafted. I got you. Yeah, and actually, that that makes perfect sense. I, if I recall, even too, when this was sold, a, a big part of it was like this idea that Arizona or the West was going to come in with a straw and suck out Lake Michigan uh, water. And this doesn't quite fit that narrative. It's kind of like, oh, this little close, right next door, surrounding that. So that politics, Corey, of each governor taking that in consideration makes perfect sense. Um, I really like your. You know, the, and it was ext it's extremely enlightening to know about the, that Racine really had no say in this, and really thinking that is a policy flaw. It makes perfect sense, and and this environmental you know injustice, right, in terms of a wealthy community versus Racine, right, is is absolutely instructive. Um, before you go, uh, and this has been very uh, very enlightening interview. Talk a little bit more about looking forward, right? I mean, I think. Um, you know, we have an election coming up. Uh, obviously, it's been it's been a rough go for progressives, Democrats, um, and but there's a lot of people who are working hard and have you know real vision about how we could this could be a very different state in ten years if we started to make changes. How does this fit in? What do you what do what do you suggest to people about like how we go forward on uh, making sure that the compact is either better or just 
in general dealing with these kinds of environmental or conservation issues uh, as progressives? Yeah, I mean, I think for conservatives who uh, who have really retrograde views on water, not just around the compact and what's happening in Racine, but whether it's the karst issue in, in Dora and Kewanee County, where a third of the wells that people are drinking from are literally poisoned from CAFOs and these big corporate farms and, and the runoff there, or, you know, our lakes literally, um, you know, no longer being swimmable or fishable because of all the phosphorus and these big algae blooms, or the central sands where, you know, big ag again has put so many high-capacity wells in the ground that rivers and lakes are literally drying up and disappearing. You know, the the problem with the approach to water that, that people have had for a long time in this state is that it's infinite, that we've got this endless supply of water and that we can do whatever we want with it. I think moving forward, um, Republicans' view on this and conservatives' view on this is just to continue to pretend that it's a, an endless resource, consequences be damned. And I think for people who, who care about the water and care about our public trust doctrine and know how important our rivers and the Great Lakes, but all our inland lakes, too, how important that is to our identity and what it is to be part of Wisconsin and our natural heritage and what it means to be able to go up north and still be able to enjoy a clean, pristine lake where you can swim or camp or have a cabin on a lake or go fishing with your kids. That's part of who we are. And if if people don't start realizing that there's real political consequences to these bad decisions and that that threatens that way of life, I think uh, we're all going to be at loss. But I think the rallying cry for progressives uh, is that people do care about this and, and they care about it across the political spectrum. And if we do our job right and, and raise awareness on it and hold people accountable, uh, that there's a real chance of turning this around. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and uh, educate us today a little bit, and um, but also just for your leadership on this issue uh, throughout your tenure as a state rep and and, and going forward. Uh, you're clearly uh, going to be a leader, so we appreciate that uh, taking the time today. Thanks, Matt. All right. Hey, Corey, before yeah. you go, we, we have this great part of the show called The Weekend Furlough where we ask people to tell us about one interesting thing they're going to do on the weekend when they're not uh, in their political bunkers. Uh, give us, give us something, and I'm hopefully Racine based. That would be awesome. What, what are you doing this weekend? Oh. Yeah, um, so Racine will have its oh gosh, its annual uh, gay pride uh, parade uh, this weekend on Sunday, where people will meet at uh, Monument Square and, and have a celebration of of. Uh, our diverse community and the gay community, and I think have some reflection on, on what happened in Orlando. But um, but certainly it's an opportunity for, for people to stand in solidarity with the diversity in our community, and I look forward to being there with my wife and kids this weekend. Well, make sure that you share those pictures because we'd love as Milwaukee Pride to share photos of your celebration as well. Great. Will do. Awesome. Thank you, Corey. Uh, uh, have, have a great weekend, and thanks for joining us. Uh, so breaking news, uh, ladies and gentlemen, because I obviously sit here wrapped with attention while we <laughs> record the podcast. Um, a friend of mine just posted a link to a Wisconsin State Journal article on on the face spaces that our favorite Republican lawmaker. Loose Cannon Bob Gannon. Woohoo! Loose Cannon Bob Gannon is going to introduce a proposal that would 
be dubbed the Disarmed Citizen Compensation Act, which would go a step further in discouraging gun-free zones by allowing a victim of gun violence to sue businesses with such bans and recover triple the amount of damages without regard to who was at fault. Because, quote, Loose Cannon says, there are violent thugs in our midst, some homegrown, some international, who are determined to cause us harm, end quote. Well, that's a very sensitive response in light of Orlando. Well, we always can expect more from Loose Cannon Bob Gannon. So, Jorna, we've heard from uh, Representative Mason about the uh, exciting festival parade and festival he'll be at this weekend. What are you doing? I am actually lucky because, as some podcast listeners may know, my parents live in scenic Door County. So I am going to load my bike on the back of my car and put in some quality training this weekend on the back roads of the Northern Door for the River West 24. Uh, I love biking in Door County. That sounds like a great, great time. Robert, uh, what are you doing this weekend? Well, through Friday, I'm talking about the future of health care with other national and state leaders from across the country. Uh, then I'm going to visit, since I'm in Chicago, visit my mother uh, on Friday night and Saturday. And then on Sunday, I'm embarking on another college tour with my nephew Delano and my brother Ted. And, of course, it's for Delano, not for Ted and I. Yes, your microbrew tour. We'll be stopping off in Eau Claire in order to have a strategic planning session with the Western Wisconsin Organizing Cooperative of Citizen Action. So there'll be a little work mixed in on the trip. Well, if you're going to be in um, the Minneapolis area, I do believe, isn't that the home to Surly Brewery? Uh, that's a that's a good beer up there. That's one of my favorite universities. Surly University? Yeah. I, it's when I, that's where I would go to university. That's where I would go to school if I could go back, but I can't. I would go to Minneapolis. Yeah. Robert, have a, have a great time with Delano on that tour. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing you're actually doing with him, and he's a bright kid, so let's, let's get him in the right university. All right, this weekend... Absolutely. So with that, um, I will be in Unity, Wisconsin, which is hard to say where that is. It's it's about 40 miles west of Wausau, racing dirt bikes. Uh, so very excited to uh, do that. My, my other son, Gabe, uh, did his first race last weekend, so he'll be joining us now from, from, from every weekend out racing. So uh, very excited about that, and it was uh, his 15th birthday. Um, before we go, I want to give a shout-out to all of the members from the Milwaukee Cooperative who showed up on Wednesday evening. Over, well over 100 members came for the one-year anniversary of the co- organizing cooperative. Uh, very excited about that. And, of course, as we've mentioned, uh, the second cooperative has been launched in western Wisconsin. So we're very excited about that, and thanks to everyone who was able to make it. And as always, we want to thank Brian Woolridge, the producer who makes this podcast happen every week. And with that, we will see you next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin.